This Saturday panel on OTB. And I'm coming off the pitch. He said, uh, Richard is on the phone. Richard? Yeah, he said, he's in Mexico. And then I'm totally bamboozled. I said, who the hell is Richard in Mexico? But it happened to be Richard Harris. But I got on the phone to him and, and I swear to God, he's crying down the phone like congratulating me and telling me how, how great it is. And he asked me, can I come to the final? I said, of course you can. Don't miss the panel every Saturday afternoon on OTB Sports Radio. Tune in 24-7 on the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. But fans can be the harshest critics, you know. They often are. A wife is often the harshest critic of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochard has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. Well, you're welcome back to Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us on 53106. We're streaming live as well now, so you can listen on News Talk, but you can also watch us on the Off the Ball social channels for Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, and on Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. If you haven't downloaded that already, search OTB Sports in your app store now to do so. This is the Saturday panel. We're going to review the sporting week. We haven't done this for a while, uh, between now and half two, with the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist Maura Trasinikali, the rugby writer from the Irish Independent, Kean Tracy, and Mick O'Keefe, the CEO of Tenio Ireland, which specialises in sports communications and strategic sponsorship consultancy. So Maura Trasa, Kean and Mick, how are we all getting on today? Great. Good, thanks. How are you? Hey, John. How are things? Yeah, good, good, folks. Um, and I suppose we'll just start off with Leinster and Munster. It is a final uh, in Ireland at the RDS. Pity there's no fans there. Five o'clock. 1879, the first time we had a Leinster-Munster provincial match. And there's no better place to start, I think, when we're looking back on the preparations for this and, and speaking about the game as well. Kean, you're a Limerick man. Munster-Leinster, what did all this mean to you growing up before you became a, a rugby scribe? Before I became impartial, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I suppose I would have grown up in the days when the AIL was at its peak. And to me, like that was incredible like I mean you get the away trips to Dublin and Cork and I guess then it kind of fed into the Munster-Leinster rivalry when that kicked off and yeah like it was huge I remember travelling all over the place like going to all the Heineken Cup finals and like it was an incredible time but the Munster-Leinster rivalry was was really really special like I mean you think back to the game at Lansdowne Road the game at Crow Park and they were absolutely class and I know there's been some talk that maybe the rivalry isn't quite the same as it is today, and it, it, it probably isn't, to be honest, but I don't think that means that it, it doesn't matter and it's not still hugely important. Um, you look back and like there's so many different reasons why the rivalry might not be the same. I'm sure we'll get into it. But like, if, if you consider like Munster just have not been successful in the last 10 years. You go back to 2001, it was the last, or 2011, sorry, the last time they won a trophy when they beat Leinster in the Magners League, I think it was, at the time. And I think for the rivalry to really kind of kick off again, it's going to take Munster to beat Leinster in a big game and there'll be no better time to, to do it than today. Like you said, it's really disappointing that there's going to be no fans in the stadium. And obviously, the, the timing of this final is very strange in that it's coming off the back of the, the Six Nations 
which leaves very little time, obviously, for the players to get back up to provincial speed. But when you think about the fact that the, the, the Ireland players have been living in each other's pockets for the last two months, basically, in a biosecure bubble that they were only released from maybe once or twice. So it's very strange to go from that last weekend to now like trying to knock lungs out of each other this, uh, today. So it should be really good, but like, it's, it, it, there are reasons why the rivalry probably isn't like what it was. You look at the IRFU's policy in terms of trying to move players, you know, between provinces. It's been one of David Nusifora, the IRFU's uh, performance director. It's been one of his big remits. So that obviously plays into it as well. But I don't think it, 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 it you can't you can't say it doesn't matter to players. Like you look at someone like Peter O'Mahony, like he's gonna want nothing more than to lead Munster to glory today. So yeah. I think to really kick it off it will it will take Munster to beat Leinster in one of these big games. Mick, uh, you're from Dublin, so am I. Uh, the Leinster-Munster thing, I suppose, has really only exploded over the last 20 years, hasn't it? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think the, the modern rivalry of Leinster and Munster is only 25 years old. And just picking up what Keane was saying, you know, is, this, is there a needle there in this derby? And, you know, there's five kind of underlying reasons, I would say, why there isn't, right? Um, that's not to say that it, it can't be reignited. So I think the first point, and one that Keane has alluded to, is the mix of players in both squads, they're not all of the place or not from the place. And that is because of, you know, our few policies that players should be able to to, to move down the motorway and, and play for whatever club. There is, you know, obviously players from outside the country come in and play as well. So the sense of identity maybe isn't there that was very clearly there 20 years ago. I, I also think they haven't played each other in a really big Champions Cup match in a long time. And I think that's another important factor. I know the Pro 14 final is huge, but a semi-final or a final of a Champions Cup will be bigger. The other thing, and Keane alluded to this as well, is it's been very one-sided and you can't have a derby or rivalry if one team keeps winning all the time. And, you know, it's it's probably got to a point where Munster need to win to keep this derby alive and to keep it front and centre. Um, and there's also been a power shift in rugby, I think. If you look back to the 90s, that Munster identity came from Shannon, Gary Owen, you know, Young Munster, Cork Con. They dominated the AAL. The AAL in the last 10 years has been completely dominated by Dublin clubs as well, which isn't something that people have kind of picked up on. So the power shift has shifted towards Dublin and towards, and same in GA and, and, and others. Um, I also think the derbies, a lot of them used to be played over Christmas, John, as you know, and you'd often get player rotation and you mightn't get the two best teams out. So at least today, it looks like they're stacked, which is good. And then the last point is, and is you know, 10 years ago, there was a point when people, I would say, cared more for their provincial team and following their team around Europe than they did for Ireland. I think that power shift since Joe Schmidt came in completely changed. And players now are Ireland first, club second. You could argue that for a period there, they were almost provincial club first, Ireland second for a while. <clears throat> and the interest in the Irish rugby team waned a little bit in the early, in the noughties. And you'd Munster guys travelling around Europe and that whole buzz about that. And then Leinster obviously followed suit after that. So I think they'd be the kind of underlying reasons why I think it's not the same as it was. Um, in saying that, I think I think it's only going to take, you know, a, a cracking match today and potentially, and I hate saying that, a, a Munster win maybe to reignite that all, whole, whole thing again. But for it to be a real derby, you know, you need to have two to tango. And Rotilli's only been, been one show in town for the last 10 years. And I think the game Keane's talking about the Munster win was a week after a Champions Cup final, if I'm not mistaken, um, where you had a bruised and battered and probably 
uh, quite uh, over-celebrated Leinster team <laughs> coming out the following weeks. I'm not saying yeah. it doesn't count, yeah. but uh, you know what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I, for me, to, for a real derby, it, have, it has to have a more parity. And for that to happen, I think um, that might reignite this this derby. And a, and a big Champions Cup match would do it no harm either. 5-3-1-6, uh, Leinster Munster fans, what do you think about Mikas and Keane are saying there? Maura Trasso, you're a Galwegian, so how do you feel about uh, from the outside looking in about Leinster and Munster? Oh, we used to be so jealous. <laughs> That's how it was for us. Like, But I'm of the ilk where back in the day when Connacht was in danger, I remember the big protest up in Dublin. I was in college in Galway at the time and sure it was a day out in Dublin. I won't say I was dying mad into rugby or anything, but I went along for that trip. And that was the time when I realised you know, the rugby community in Ireland, it is there and it is passionate and it mightn't be as big as other communities. It gets a lot of noise in recent years because of, you know, television rights and the international team, which is great. But these provincial ties are important. But I think Mick is right. We need two to tango. And I hope the tango starts again today. But I think it's really interesting as well about you guys were saying, you know, being of the place and being from the place. And sometimes I think I think the Connacht story has shown that doesn't always have to be the way because when Pat Lamb came to Galway, it felt like he was one of us. And you see as well, Bundy Aki, you know, he is so popular. The last time I was at a Connacht game in the sports ground, um, all the local kids were cheering on the team coming out. But when Bundy came out, they went nuts. And he may as well have been reared in Unspidil, you know, as he would elsewhere. So it goes to show, I think it's more to do with the connection with your fans and your supporters and working with your fan base and giving people a bit of hope. And that's the issue, isn't it, at the moment, in that, like, in recent years, you expect Leinster to win. Today, I don't think everybody does, and I think that's the magic. And we need it to reignite, but all you need is one heavy hit at the beginning and it could all go off, and here's hoping. Yeah, Kean, have you seen CJ Stander and James Lowe, these project players, become immersed in what the Leinster brand is, what the Munster brand is? Uh, yeah, I, I really have. And I think Maura Trassa is spot on. I mean, the Connacht example is probably the best out of them all. You look at what Pat Lamb did. But yeah, for sure. I mean, like CJ Standard came over here as, I think he was he 21 or something and couldn't even speak English. Like, And he's really, really bought into, I guess, Munster's way of life, but also Limerick as well. I mean, you know, obviously you talk to people back home and they could bump into him in the street and he'd stop talking to them. And I think like so much has been made of... Um, the project players, probably more so in an Irish context over the last couple of years. But I think to the IRFU's credit, like they haven't got every single one of them right. But I think when they have looked to bring a player in, they've made sure that they kind of understand what they're buying into. And I think it's also important when you look at like the Irish provincial squads and you, you look at someone like, we'll say, a Peter O'Mahony, a Johnny Sexton, a John Muldoon while he was at Connacht. When you have someone... Like who is such a true leader of the province, who's able to relate that to the guys who are coming in, I think that becomes hugely important as well. And I, I yeah, I, I certainly would think the likes of James Lowe um, has certainly bought into the, the Dublin way of life. I mean, you see the outpouring of emotion CJ Stander has gotten since he announced that he's going to retire from rugby at the end of the season. And, you know, it, it, like people buy into, I think, the likes of CJ Stander as much as he buys into the people. So I think it's very much a two-way process and it was interesting like you saw how much Ireland used that to their advantage last week against England in my mind there was no doubt at all that you know when CJ Sander did announce it the week of the game I was kind of thinking geez it's a strange enough timing to to announce it but in actual fact it really really played into Ireland's hands and you look at it because someone like Billy Holland as well today you know like he's gonna he's retiring at the end of the season too JJ Hannon is going to be leaving so there's a huge emotional factor here 
that I think Munster can rely on in the similar way that Ireland did last weekend. Five o'clock at the RDS. We love the Six Nations. It was great. Maybe it's the time we're living in at the moment and the difficult time it is. Um, <laughs> but I'm just a little bit worried about this uh, tournament going behind a paywall uh, in future years. CVC have bought 14.3% of it. I can't see them getting involved if there's not going to be subscription service involved in Six Nations rugby. It's a tournament that captures the imagination. Mick, from the business of sport perspective, is this going to be damaging for rugby if it does go behind that paywall? <clears throat> well, I, look, I, I think, look, when you look at this debate, look, if you're the chief executive of a major sports organisation, you've you've two main things you need to do at the moment. One is to grow the game and the other one is to grow the value and grow the revenue, right? So there's always this balance between, as a rights holder, between reach and revenue, right? So this is the delicate thing that they need to do anytime they head into these negotiations. And you have to trust your administrators to get that balance right. So you want as much exposure as you, as you, as you can get and you need to get as much revenue as you can get, right? So the, the key word for me here is balance. So where Six Nations goes with this, I I, I don't know, but you may end up with a scenario with, with like, like the GA have, which is a nice balance between some is pay-per-view, some will be free to air. You know, you've got the autumn uh, internationals now been bundled into a kind of a one entity as well. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I also think it's a bit too simplistic to say it's pay-per-view or free to air because the way rights have been divvied up now, you've streaming, you also have highlights packages. And bear in mind that TV audiences have been dwindling. Live TV sport is in marginal decline year on year. And live TV sport, the audiences are getting older. So the challenge is not necessarily where you put the live matches on. That is obviously a huge part of it. Um, and do you, how much do you stream? What markets do you go into? Do you look at what Amazon have done in, with the NFL last week, which is take a Thursday night package and, you know, do you have social media platforms like TikTok or Twitter or whoever coming in and taking, you know, the goals and goals and, well, not in this instance, obviously the, the scores uh, packages and stuff like that. So it's, it's not just about pay or, or, or non-pay as well. And then you've got, you know, the thing around where Amazon is, if for the, in that instance, is actually freely available in, in, in loads and loads of, of, of households in the UK as well, where people don't actually have to pay extra. So there is a watch out, right? And I think there's plenty of examples to show that when sport goes completely behind a paywall, it has a detrimental impact on viewer figures, but also audience participation. And we all know we run out with the tennis racket when Wimbledon is on and out with the, the golf clubs when the Open is on and all that stuff that all the evidence is there from your own childhood and what you see now. Um, and I think it's really important that they get the they get the balance right here. Um, they look at all the, all the formats that are there and that they don't go too heavily one way or the other. If you're a strategic investor like CBC or any other firm like that, of course you're looking for to grow value, but you can't grow value with a minute with, with declining audiences. So I don't think it's it's a direct private investor equals goes behind paywall because it's more money. Sponsorship is linked to TV audiences and there's other kind of complications in that as well. So it's a really important time and you know there's a there's a right cycle coming up. But I would think that rugby the rugby authorities but also the other sports that are involved in these they tend to get the balance right because there's obviously the evidence there from from the past where you know you can't grow sport without money but you can't grow sport without eyeballs and 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 reach this is the way it's going cricket uh eight million watched the ashes in 05 467,000 watched the ashes in 2015 but they're still going that way 
we've seen with golf the participation rights have declined and Sky have done an amazing job and it's not about the broadcasters in uh, pay-per-view not doing a great job they do an amazing job Formula 1 is fantastic as we spoke about in the news round but Kian, um is, just this, is this just the way it's going with sport all sports that, that it's yeah. going this way yeah, it probably is, and it's it's interesting you mentioned the Formula One example because obviously CVC have gone in there, and I know like when I was growing up and um, F- Formula One was on free tear television on a Sunday morning, I'd be absolutely glued to it. Now I know it's not the same as um, I never had a dream of becoming a Formula One driver, but it, it does translate to rugby because if rugby suddenly you can't see it, where are the kids going to be able to to see it? Because as a supporter at the moment, and even from my own point of view because obviously I have to watch most of the games from from at home like it's very difficult to keep track of where the rugby is being shown because it's across so many different uh, platforms at the moment and not to mention how bloody expensive it is as well so like I'd have a lot of sympathy for, from that point of view but just to touch on one of the points that Mick raises if if they do go down the sort of the hybrid model which it sounds like they will in terms of having some games free to air and some games behind a subscription for me a lot of that really depends on what quality of games are going to be the free-to-air games. Because if you're, like, John, you mentioned how good the Six Nations was over the last two months, and I couldn't agree more, um, even, like, taking off my sort of work hat. It's been absolutely incredible to watch um, not only the, the exciting and the really high standard of rugby that we saw, but it really helps take your mind off the kind of the madness of what's going on in the world at the moment. But if if you were going down the hybrid model and if the free to air games let's say for example where where the italy games where they're getting absolutely pumped every week like what does that do for for the product and if the money men behind this you know want to put we'll say england and ireland behind the the paywall or england and france like or you look at the match last night you know the finale which was really exciting as well if these games are the ones that are going to be going behind the paywall and they're giving the lesser games free to air then I think then that becomes a major, major issue because, like I said, if people can't see the sport, then how is it expected to grow? And for me, like rugby has still so much growth to go. It's still a relatively new sport when you think of like the turn of professionalism. And there's still so many areas that hopefully CBC can push this down in terms of the marketing of the sport and, and things like that. And and also, like rugby is in as a sport itself is in a tricky position at the moment when you think about like the concussion issues. And understandably, parents have um, have serious concerns about you know putting their kids into allowing them to play the sport. But if they can't see the good sides of rugby, which like we have seen a lot of the good sides of rugby over the last two months in terms of the the quality of rugby, then if if the if the narrative around rugby becomes really negative and you don't actually get to see the good things, and that would concern me as well from a sort of developmental point of view further down the road. I'm I think tra- Keen, though, sorry, John, sorry, John, just one quick point on that is when the when the, the rights holder goes to negotiate the TV. Uh, packages they also have to factor in and they usually align with the sponsorship deals as well so uh, a major sponsor coming in isn't going to want all games behind a, a paywall right it's an obvious one that if if an audience is 2 million versus 10 million for a match what do you want as a sponsor so it, you don't want to undermine the value of the sponsorship as well by putting everything behind a paywall for for a, what for the return for a quick return or a quick book you might end up with a, a lower diminishing return for the overall stuff. Do you know what I mean? So just to kind of put that there as well. Maura Trasic, uh, just before we go to the break, you work on TV presentation. We see uh, Amazon referenced recently in connection with the, the potential GA auction uh, for the next round. Is this the way inevitably that all sports going? It, does it worry you? How, what, are your, what are your thoughts on it? 
I wouldn't say it worries me. Um, I'm interested in it. I think we've seen, and Mix alluded to there as well, about how pe- the, the viewership is dropping for live sport as a whole. And I think younger people in particular, they're just not going to sit down and watch golf for a whole weekend. But we might all sit down of a Sunday afternoon and watch the last beat of it, you know. So it's going to evolve. I just don't know where it's going to end up. My big worry would be, though, is that, yeah, the visibility won't be there. And But I kind of hope that the rugby's of the world are going to learn from golf and from cricket and saw that what happened when it went back behind that wall, people weren't seeing it. And the only people who were seeing it tended to be older gentlemen who had the money for these packages. So I think it's going to become a bit more is it even a word Netflixy? you might be able to get to tune into what you want to tune in and then if you don't want to tune into the whole product you might be able to go and see the highlights elsewhere i think that's where it's going to go it's going to become more fragmented more fractured but i think overall what that's going to mean is a probably good thing for sports because those who are interested will have the access if it's done properly but sponsors as well will win because they are going to get the exact eyes onto their product that they want i think that's how it's going to end up eventually of course mick might say no she's totally wrong but that's my opinion <laughs> Is there a moral question still around GAA, Moratrasa, and we've tried the Sky uh, thing, uh, network right. talking talk potentially about Amazon. I know they need to invest the, the money back into the sport and it's, an, it's a non-profit and there's great clubhouses around the country and coaching and development. Is the trade-off at the moment on the right balance? I mean, people would say, I would say this because I did present Allianz League for Air Sports, which was indeed behind a paywall. But my theory is that just because the GAA belongs to all of us, if we remember, that doesn't mean that we all should have access to everything all the time. And I think we need to make sure that the product stays professional, that it stays funded, and that we, like you said, what's, you know, what the money that comes into Crow Park buys the net somewhere in Kinsale. And that's the long and short of it. And I do think we need to stay cognizant of this. And times are moving and times are changing. And while we mightn't always like it, and we need to try and find ways to make it as fair as possible. And I'm not sure the GAA have always won that battle. And I think there's probably better ways of doing certain things. I do think that if we don't move with those times, the GAA runs the risk of being left behind and becoming an inferior product. And I even hate calling sport a product. But when you're talking about marketing and sponsorship and TV rights, that's what it is. It's a sport. It's not a community game at that point. You know, money, there's a lot of money involved, but we need that money to make sure that the under eight teams are funded as well. We've got about a minute left on this. Keen, what's what's going to happen tonight, Leinster Munster? Yeah, like it's interesting. A lot of people seem to be favouring kind of on the Munster side of things. Um, I would still probably have concerns about the Munster front five, the front row in particular. Um, you look at that Leinster bench, like they're able to bring off Johnny Sexton and Tyg Furlong, which probably in itself shows you that their priority is lying in the Champions Cup, which is probably in another talking point in itself. But I would really love just from like an even a neutral point of view just to see Munster get one over them, like we said earlier, to, to respark the, the rivalry. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Leinster just edge it. Okay, five three one oh six for your text matches. Gonna take the news now. Back with more Trasney Cali, uh Key and Tracy and Mick O'Keefe on the Saturday panel after this. The Saturday panel on off the ball. This is the Saturday panel on Off the Ball and News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us 53106, tweet us at Off the Ball. We're reviewing the sporting week just gone uh, with the broadcaster and sports psychologist Maura Trassini Kelly, uh, the rugby writer from the Irish Independent, Keen Tracy, and Mick O'Keefe, CEO of Tenio Ireland, specialising in sports communications and strategic sponsorship consultancy. Uh, we're streaming the conversation as well now, so as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the social channels for Off the Ball, for Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the new OTB Sports 
Sports app. Search OTB Sports in your app store now to download that if you haven't already for iOS and Android. So it's just some on text messages, 53106. Let everyone go back to club rugby if they're professional provinces. They're not clubs. Uh, go fully behind a paywall. Munster need to have the likes of Cork Con, Gary Owen, etc. being competitive and kicking lumps out of each other. Uh, that's what made Munster competitive all those years ago. Ask Peter Clahasy, Keith Wood, Dave Wallace, etc. The only solution for Munster. Uh, putting elite rugby behind a paywall could benefit the AIL, says another of our texters. It may get more free-to-air time and therefore more sponsorship, says Owen. I hope Six Nations will not go like Formula One, says another of our texters. And I'm a dub, but I despise Leinster. As Marcy says, it's got nothing to do with me about my life. Uh, so come on, Munster, says Joe. And uh, we got a, also a tweet from Conor Mars, the great Conor Mars, the terrestrial versus paywall TV sports rights dilemma is a nuanced one. Good cop, bad cop is a lazy analogy. Good to hear some balanced industry insight from Mick O'Keefe on the Saturday panel. Uh, just on managers in sport, Andy Farrell last week, if they'd lost England, it would have been months of columns, I'm sorry, Keen. Um, uh, uh, discussion of Andy Farrell's under massive pressure. You know, he's never been a coach. What's going to happen here? And now they've won. They beat England comprehensively. Uh, they, they bought so much time. They're now through to 2023, the World Cup probably. Then Stephen Kenny, no wins. Questions being asked about Stephen Kenny. Never managed at the top level in England. Um, like doesn't have Trapattoni or O'Neill's experience. Do we need to ki- cut managers a bit of slack, Maura Trassa? Yes. Uh, there's no two ways about it. We do. Um, I was actually listening to Kevin Kilban. He was on yesterday's OTBAM, and he made a very good, impassioned case for giving Stephen Kenny the, you know, the two seasons, the two years to let him build up and build what he's trying to do and that's the trouble you see so many managers not getting the time to implement things in the right way psychologically physically holistically in a way that will develop a team long term so it's gone very short term thinking like even when you watch the premier league somebody's gotten a bad run next thing you know their heads on the chopping board like frank lampard is a good example of how this time last year people are saying oh my god isn't this amazing this guy never did any coaching and look where he is now and chelsea are doing great and now where's he gone and um, okay you could argue chelsea are doing well now but is that just because the next side that's come in is doing short-term work uh, rather than thinking of the long-term game, which means then a few weeks and months into this, things begin to slide again because everybody is thinking about their head, keeping it on their shoulders, therefore looking at the next game, the next game, and not having any kind of long-term thought. And it's not good for the development of sport. It's not good for the development of athletes. And it's also, I just can't imagine, it can't be very good for the managers to being on the receiving end of this. And when they're sitting there taking questions from journalists, and I include myself in that, and sometimes you find yourself asking questions that aren't nice, and you're asking them. And sometimes I used to find myself, ask myself, am I asking this because the people at home wanted to ask, or am I asking this because journalists are talking about it? So my theory always was, if I felt that people were sitting at home asking a particular question, I would ask it. But if it was just chitter-chatter amongst the you know elite uh, journalists in um, in the back rooms, I just said, no, I'm not going to ask this. I just didn't think it was fair because I just don't think we should be filling columns or radio airtime based on our opinions, unless the very least it seems to be the opinion of the majority of people watching at home as well. Yeah, I wonder if Fergie would have survived a Man U if Man U was now. Now, to be fair, they're giving Solskjaer uh, plenty of time and you're probably going to get a new contract at Man United. But the late 80s, like Fergie, had lots of chances and eventually got it right. And then the rest is history, 13 Premier League titles and two Champions Leagues. Do the economic realities of sport and a sports madination that is extremely demanding, Mick O'Keefe, marry yeah. with giving managers time <clears throat> like Stephen Kenny to build something over a long period of time? 
Yeah, just on Ferguson. We went out to visit my sister in London in 1989-90 and we went to Wimbledon Man United in Cobalt Plough Lane, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, United fans chanted for Fergie out all, all game. And they were, the red issue was the, the fans magazine and it had on the front, it was Mel Majin had just been sacked by Man City and it was like, you know, City fans get their Christmas presents, when do we get ours? They, I think that was the year they won the cup. Yeah. Or with they won that cup match, and yeah, everything. The rest is history. But, Mark Robinson. Um, you're right. Yeah, look, they, I, on that, I, I actually think I slightly dis. I actually think we're extraordinarily patient as a as a country with our with our managers. I don't think we have that kind of gutter press, and you know, our journalists are, are a little bit more kind of nuanced. I I think, and you know, they don't really tend to go straight on the attack. Albeit there has been this evolution of these kind of more opinionated Sunday analysts who, you know, are are, are paid to be, you know, um, confrontational in tone. So there there is that. There is that. I, I actually think Stephen Kenny, I think the, the debate around him has been really balanced to like, and I, I think, you know, the Kevin Kilbane stuff, I heard that and other journalists have really given him every out, I think, but he, he has to start winning matches, right? And, you know, Andy Farrell was really under pressure coming into that England match. You know, it's kind of hard to think now because we won. But, do, you know, do, there was talk, you know, that if he lost, that he was under pressure. And, you know, I suppose the, the, the view was that you're two years out from a World Cup um, and if he's not the right guy now, will he be the right guy then? Now, you have to give a manager time to to bed a team in. You have to give a manager time to get his, you know, his own team culture and ethos and way of playing across. But ultimately, it is a results business. And I, I do think we should question and probe and and interrogate because it's important for the for the sport and it's important for the association. And yeah, there is a commercial side to this as well. Like people don't want to be involved with losing teams. Um, so if the manager's not working out, you know, I think he it needs to be called out um, and, and, and there's a big picture here. players have five and six and seven seven years in, in their in their career at their peak they don't want to be playing for a manager who, who isn't up to it um, now I'm not saying Stephen Kenny's not up to it I actually really like Stephen Kenny and I hope hope to God they win and I hope to God that we can get on a soccer bandwagon because there's nothing like it But and I and I think he will and, and I think Andy Farrell should be given time I'm not specifically talking about them but I do think we are very patient, but I do think maybe too patient. And I, and, and I think it is OK to be demanding and it is OK to call people out when results aren't aren't the way they need to be, because we owe it to the players and we owe it to the fans and we owe it to the sport to have the right person in charge. And if the right person is not in charge after two years or whatever the time is, he's likely not going to be the right fella in four or five years time either. And you're better off getting somebody else in who will be who, who will be the right guy. Or woman but, for, but Mick, for the job. You argue, like, are we being patient or are we being realistic? Because I'm, first of all, if you compare Stephen Kenny and um, Andy Farrell, they're two very different sports with two very different demographics and two very different expectations. So is it that just that maybe we, the Irish, have finally realised that Italia 90 was nearly a blip? We had much better players than compared to what we have now. So therefore, we're just tempering our expectations. And compared to previous management teams, it looks like Stephen Kenny has a different approach and that approach is going to involve having to develop newer, younger players. We saw the ones he left on the bench, so maybe that's why people might be a little bit more forgiving because it's not the definition of madness, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. No, you're right. And, and look, they, they couldn't be two different cases in that you've such high expectation in rugby and at the moment now, I think we've such low expectation in football um, and in soccer because oh, we've had a couple of lean years and because of the debacle at the top of the FAI, which has thankfully been been turned around now, um, you know, I, I think the Stephen Kenny one is is based on realism in that this guy does need time. 
he has been hampered by COVID and all the injuries and he is trying to rebuild a team and he, I think people want him to succeed because he's of the community right he's of and, and I think that is around expectation and I think there's a realism with that the Andy Farrell one is probably the extreme other uh, side where there's now this expectation around the Irish rugby team winning six nations there is an expectation now that we should be getting to a semi-final of a, of a World Cup so it's a standards of the performances aren't really really high and we aren't beating the top teams all the time well then the pressure comes on and, and he's probably been it's probably unfair on him I think some of the talk um, around which was kind of going going around during the Six Nations because you know he's come in and he's trying to rebuild a, 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 a new squad and, and a new team and he does need time in, in, in my view and I think the England result should be a platform for him to drive on but the pressure on him has probably come from a decade of success whereas I suppose the lack of pressure on Kenny comes from four or five very lean years and very low expectation I still feel key in that uh, the Schmidt era was amazing for Irish rugby three Six Nations the Grand Slam uh, winning at Twickenham and winning in, in Paris beating New Zealand at home beating them in Chicago beating South Africa beating Australia and still for me that sour note of Japan has not dissipated. No, it hasn't. And, and I was there as well for the, for the whole six or seven weeks and what it was. And yeah, it was really disappointing. You look at the 2019 that Ireland had and actually you look at what England are going through at the moment. And for me, I see a lot of similarities there. But like, I, for me personally, I think across the board, the, the coverage on Andy Farrell in particular and his coaching team has been pretty fair and balanced. Um, I think the difference is probably maybe some people had already made up their mind about Stephen Kenny that he wasn't the man for the job without giving him a chance and I don't really think that happened um, in rugby and like it's important to remember how like the circumstances which like both of both of these managers in particular had made a huge huge step up obviously Stephen Kenny's first um, senior international job it was Andy Farrell's first ever head coach job at all and you look you take COVID into in all that um, it's hugely hugely testing tricky times I think the thing about the rugby is it's probably Mick mentions the expectations there but that comes from the success like you mentioned John of what um, Schmidt delivered but also like the fact that the competing nations in the World Cup are far 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 less than what it is in the soccer World Cup like realistically um, the Rugby World Cup doesn't kick off until the quarterfinals when you have the best A teams you know and then you get a bit of competition because there's a lot of there's a lot of blowouts but I suppose in rugby you look at Paul O'Connell coming in and obviously Mike Cat, John Fogarty I think there's more responsibility for individual sort of aspects of rugby, whereas kind of Stephen Kenny is, you know, I know he has his assistants, but I think it's a little bit different in that, you know, rugby, you have your attack coach. And yeah, like Mike Cat was under a lot of pressure, I think, over the last couple of months because we just really haven't been seeing, you know, the results um, of what he's been doing. And while the players said, oh, it's like it's coming, it's coming, it was absolutely brilliant to see it coming against England. But that doesn't suddenly mean that Ireland are back to the 2018 levels they were. I think that's, it was really disappointing that there wasn't a game this weekend just to see how they would have kicked on. But like one swallow doesn't make a summer, I would suggest. But there's no doubt it's a massive platform to kick on and build off. 
Uh, Key and Tracy, Moratrasa Nikali and Michael Key for viewing the week in sport here. GA wise, Moratrasa, like so training for adults and youth uh, level GA players in the north resuming on the 12th of April, pods of 15 or less. Only training will be permitted at this juncture. No games or competitive activity involved. We don't know what's going to happen down this uh, south of the border. You're involved in the medical field, obviously, uh, for anybody who knows you, Moratrasa. What's your uh, kind of assessment of the landscape where we are in terms of returning to some type of GA? activity because we're going to have to make decisions now around what tournaments are going to be played this year um honestly i have no clue no more than yeah. anybody <laughs> else sitting here um all i do know is that everybody is itchy feet everybody is raring to go which is totally understandable um, it's looking like the north is going to get the go ahead possibly before people sell to the border I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing I do think if whenever anyone's allowed to do anything we should because we need to endeavour to try and be as normal as possible as much as we can in this very very weird year, year and a half, probably two years by the time all this is up but I do think it's interesting that the noise seems to have gone from you know allow intercounty back, allow clubs back to now people saying you know allow children back and you know kids need a further psychological development and their physical development you know oh but mental health and that's the thing that's the refrain that i've been hearing for the last few months and i have to say it drives me insane that people are latching on to things just to try and get something back and i do think we need to keep you know our perspective that every week thanks be to god the cases are dropping and the vaccines are going into more and more arms that still every day we're getting notices of death and people in icu and thankfully it doesn't come to as many doors as it could have because of these restrictions. But now we're at the point, you know, we're thinking the vast majority of people playing GAA aren't going to get that very sick, especially with kids. So it's that delicate balancing act. It's nuanced. You can't just keep everyone inside. That's not healthy. At the same time, we do need to keep perspective of what will happen if everybody does go outside at the same time, you know. And to be fair to the GA in particular, they've been really, really good on this because they have a prong in every parish on the whole island of Ireland and around the world as well. And they have played their part, to be fair to them, from the beginning of it all when they allowed, gave Crow Park over for testing and other grounds around the country. And um, they have done everything by the book and they've only ever been let down by people be not behaving the appropriate way outside their grounds and a few people sitting in on top of each other in stands. So I think to give the GA their due, once they're allowed back, they will go back and it will be planned and it should be safe. But I just really want to stop hearing this, you know, but mental health and suicide rates going on the up. We have data and we have seen there's actually a very interesting article in the British Medical Journal written by a professor of psychiatry in England. He's in charge of the national suicide strategy in, over there in England. And they've yet to see any evidence that this pandemic is making, you know, suicide rates go on the up, which is good. Um, that's not to say one suicide is one too many, but I don't think we can simplify and say we need sport for mental health. We don't. We are resilient humans. What we need for mental health is compassion and empathy and staying alive and staying healthy and doing what is normal whenever we can. I think we need a plan. Uh, that's what yes. I haven't been hearing from well, it's uh, the government. You don't know. And to be fair, like... I think we all have to get our heads around as well. And it took me a while as well to get my head around this, that the virus we have now and the variant we have now is very different at this time last year. And I think they're cognizant of that. And they are, for, especially when you put kids back in school. And then you hear the argument, you know, of the whole, well, if my kids can play together in school, why can't they have play dates or why can't they play sport? And that makes a lot of sense, especially when sport is out of doors. But I'm assuming, and again, I'm only assuming, uh, that the reasoning behind this is that we all know everything we do at the moment carries a bit of risk. And it's probably more important that you give the risk level to school 
rather than to organize sport. But hopefully that's going to change. I think it will change. Here's hoping. I'm crossing my fingers and toes and everything because we're all dying to get back out, uh, me especially. <laughs> I've been cooped up for too long as well. Actually, even worse for me, I feel like I got a bicycle for Christmas and I can't cycle until July because I've been vaccinated. Yeah, the, the, lack of a, <laughs> the lack of a plan, I think, is, is, is driving, that's what I think really is driving people a bit mad. Uh, Mick, uh, I think what we saw with the Cavan and Tipperary last year in football, that actually a knockout championship is okay. Uh, there'll be various uh, people arguing for no league Leagues, leagues, clubs must start at certain dates. I think it's just getting stuff back at the stage is, is the key. Yeah, look, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll come to that in a second. I, 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 the only thing I'd say, somebody who coaches kids sport, you, you, you cannot underestimate how important it is for kids to be active. And I think the GA are very cognizant of that. And I know the government are very cognizant of that as well. And this is this debate around COVID is all about balance again. We have to balance public health and safety, but we have to also balance society and mental health. And I, I, the one slight thing I disagree with is that 12 to 18 year old cohort has really struggled, right? They're, I think they're really suffering, to be honest. And, you know, yes, there are, are kids in certain areas that are much worse off than others. And there is evidence of a massive spike in antisocial behavior, drug addiction, um, alcohol abuse, et cetera, in that cohort. They're not in school, they're not playing sport. We've seen kids have been involved in incidents and 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 unfortunately some, you know, where it's just there's this swell of, of, of uh, you know, kids with, with nothing to do. And, and and I think it's really important to get them active in a safe way and when it's safe to do so. So, you know, it is about balance, I think, in this one. When it comes to the GA calendar and that specific question, um, I'm of the view that the GA could, by pure accident, be falling on the perfect calendar, right? So this has been the biggest issue in the GA for 20 years more, where, you know, you've had, like, it makes absolutely no sense to be starting a championship a club championship in 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 March and then finishes in a different calendar year altogether. Sometimes, right? It's absolutely mad when you think about it. And I think the the half the split season is actually a really good thing. I do think the way they're approaching it this year is the right way, John. I think um, I would be in favour of a league. I would also be in favour of a very short provincial championship, which again would maybe impact your standings. And I do think we need to be bringing in this tiered, particularly in football uh, championship. And I would run. Intercounty from Feb to July, maybe just into August, and start club in August when the weather's good, and run it until December. And I would close the GA season with the All Ireland Club Finals and say, "This is our, we're giving the clubs their absolute platform." And you close it in Crow Park, and you bring down the curtain on the season, and you honour the club players in a way that's respectful. Um, and I think I would be in favour of a what they're probably going to do. I'd imagine is a microwaved league, so maybe that teams of three type scenario where you know you might play and it'll be regionally so in Hurling you might have Tip Cork Waterford play or something like that um, and they will play and then the winner of that group might play the winner of another group in another game so you're getting two or three league matches um, and then I think they will go into the knockout championship and just to take your point you know last year you know it was, it was absolutely bonkers in terms of you know who to thought Cavan would have won Ulster they were probably the sixth or seventh ranked team in Ulster and Tip coming out of coming out of of, of Munster was was fabulous to see um, and and I think I think that was that's the beauty of of knockout championship I do however think that the best structure is a tier championship the Gaelic football is the only GA sport that doesn't have a tiered championship structure um, and I think longer term we're okay. getting to that that debate John but look yeah I, I think it'd be great to get the, the 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 season back up and running and I think it will be a split season and I think we will have inter-county back training in the next few weeks 
Keen, how are the natives and the rugby clubs around the country at the moment? Yeah, same as everyone else, absolutely decimated. And like, like when we're when we're talking about this, I I just think back to myself and like many many people when they were younger like I pretty much played any sport I could you know which meant that like I was pretty much training every day of the week every night of the week whether that was in school or with a club and like the outlet and that the release that that gave me as a teenager and growing up like was was just incredible and I go for a walk in a park near my house now most days as most people do just to clear the head and most times I'm up there, I see this one particular kid. He must be maybe 10 or 11. And I don't know, is he with his older brother or, or not? And they have a bag of footballs and they set up cones and the, the young kid is doing dribbling and he's doing shooting and he's doing passing. And I often just stop and just think like how desperately sad that is, that the kid is just up there on his own, clearly really driven and really wants to improve. But just think it's so, so sad to to see that and we're, we're, like that's uh, that's happening across the board I thought Tomas O'Shea had a piece in today's Irish Independent I thought it was uh, really good like you were getting his point of view from the GEA like he's also a teacher he's a dad as well so yeah like I, I, I have a huge amount of sympathy and I think well okay if the if like more trust to touch on if the data doesn't t- like point to the fact that there's issues now who's to say that this isn't going to lead to issues uh, further down the line like kind of Mick Mick touched on as well and I think you're also going to see dropout rates as well, and like I wonder, like just to touch on rugby for for a second, if if you think about the the senior cup, for example, and I know the senior cup isn't everyone's cup of tea, but if you think of senior cup, like how important that is for lads to pick up contracts in the Leinster, Ulster, Munster, whatever Connacht uh, competitions, it's absolutely huge. So you're always going to have your Gary Ringrose, your James Ryan, your Jordan Larmers, who are like absolutely outstanding young players, and they'll get picked up. But my concern is without having games for these lads, what about the, the the guys on the next rung down who need that platform, who need that coaching to improve, to push on? Like, are they going to turn, turn, just turn away from the sport? And it's something that I've been talking to coaches about. It's something that the IRFU, I know, are, are very concerned about, that like guys are just going to walk away from the sport because they have nothing there, which is going to have a knock-on effect where you could lose a potential. Because not everyone, like I said, is a super talented young player. Some people are late developers and you could end up losing them. So that would be a serious concern for me as well. That would be actually very similar to, say, the McGrory Cup in Ulster. It's so popular, the great schools mm. competition for young boys. And you could argue those who were there, well, young boys, as I, they'd be coming up to near their leaving cert or A-level age. But you know what I mean? Those who were meant to play last year lost their opportunity. This year lost their opportunity. That's two years and possibly maybe even next year. That's three years. You're going into nearly a generation of then of people. That could be their glory day. You know, I know of men who still talk about winning the McRory Cup and they loved it. And it was such a wonderful experience for them. Nothing to do with sport. It was the bonding. It was the playing. It was having fun. And like, yeah, this is the issue, isn't it? We're trying to balance all this with the with the virus that we don't know what's going to do. And I think Keane's absolutely right. We don't know when we make a move next week or the week after how that may impact things. But I do think we should just really try and be realistically positive and just remember that the vaccines are arriving. They're going to come faster. And <clears throat> sooner than we know, by next uh, by the summertime, then we should be in a much better position. And then we can only hope that the communities that we have around us, that we'll all be able to work together to try and mitigate against, against some of that offloading. But again, bigger issue, the HSE should be funding things like mental health services, physical activity, sport. It's not being done. If that had been done in advance of this pandemic, even becoming a thing, we'd have been in a better position today. So we need to learn lessons and we need to make sure that we don't just keep talking. We actually have action plans. 
Yeah, but one of the issues, though, John. Sorry, just very quickly on that is 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 activity and physical activity in this country and participation in sport is also a lot of it is social class based as well. And what we're seeing with COVID is that those in the most marginalised areas and uh, and deprived areas actually have less access to sport. And and our, I think in this instance, one of the victims of 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 COVID. And I'm not saying that we have to open everything up straight away because there is public health advice. But we just have to be aware that there is a cohort that Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday was an outlet for kids from certain parts of cities in particular who needed to get that sporting um, uh, uh, participation. Um, and they're not getting that at the moment. And I, I, I just wonder what's the long term impact of all this. The, the police evidence is there of more antisocial behaviour and kids hanging around and have nothing to do. So, look, the sooner we get people vaccinated and the vulnerable vaccinated, we can get kids back out and particularly kids from marginalised and deprived areas, I think the, 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 the better. Unfortunately, folks, we run out of time. Brilliant insight, as always, from the three of you, Keen Tracy, Michael Keefe, Maura Trastany, Kelly. I don't really care who wins between Leinster and Munster. I just hope it's a good game. But I do hope we win the match tonight against Luxembourg. <laughs> we all agree on that. Here, here. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. Chat soon. John, Bye. thanks a million. Thank you. That's the Saturday panel. Mick O'Keefe, Moore, Trastany, Kelly and Key and Tracy reviewing the sporting week, just scratching the surface on the issues that are topical at the moment. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk, back with Pit Lane reporter and Formula One, Ted Kravitz, speaking to Shane Hannan after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 